or our Palm Pilots, as the case may be. We're continuing in our series of the book of Revelation. Those of you that have been with us know that we left off on the fifth and sixth seals last time. The judgment of God is increasing as we've been stepping through the seven seals. We're now come to chapter 7, which is one of the parentheses I talked about when I introduced the book. Um, to be quite honest, I think uh, it gives us some relief as we go through this book. If God had included the, the uh, seals, trumpets, and vials in order without a break, I think one could read it and have a heart attack. It's, it's pretty heavy stuff, as, as people say. So we have a break here before we get to the seventh seal. The seventh seal actually contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet actually contains the seven bowls. So, uh, in that sense, we've pretty much finished with the, the actions, the events associated with the seals. And next time, Lord willing, when we take the book up, when we pick up with the seventh seal, we'll actually begin the, the judgments of the trumpets. But here again, uh, the parenthesis is not uh, a look at further judgments, but God is doing other things on the earth as well. You remember under the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs. And this is similar to that. It's a, uh, it's a look at those who are saved during the tribulation. We won't uh, read the whole chapter, although we're going to, Lord willing, cover it this morning. We'll read it uh, a section at a time as we go through it. So let's read the first three verses. Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, well, we're about to meet the famous 144,000 of the book of Revelation. A much abused, I might add, group of people. We'll see who they really are this morning. But before we look at them, let's uh, look at this little section here, which combined with a verse later, one I believe can use as a cue to the possible dating of when this takes place. Uh, you remember I said before that when we come to the parentheses, it's not clear exactly chronologically how to place all of them. John has just given a series of visions. Certainly the, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are all in order. One follows another. And uh, we'll pick up on a few cues here to place uh, the timing of this whole chapter. First of all, notice that we have four angels here. And uh, it says they're at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds. And the skeptic sits and says, oh, corners, the earth doesn't have corners. You know, winds, four winds, there's more than four winds. Uh, just like last time, remember, we saw the, the stars falling. And it's, and it's so uh, silly of skeptics to not allow God to use the same expressions we do. He, he speaks and uses expressions, thank God, just the same way we do. 
Uh, I remember as a young man, uh, folk music was popular in the 60s uh, when I grew up, when I was in high school and so on. We had groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary. And there was a popular song in those days called Four Strong Winds. And it comes, of course, from our expression about the four winds. We use it all the time. So it is God. Nothing more, nothing less. North, south, east, and west. That's what we mean by that. It means all the wind. That's, that's the idea. Uh, we have four points on the compass. And so that's where the four winds come from. Similarly, the four corners. We, we uh, use that expression all the time. You know, searching the corners of the earth. It just simply means everywhere. The whole, the whole earth. So these four angels who uh, control the winds are told to hold back the winds from harming anything uh, on the earth. And I believe that uh, you need to correlate verse 1 with verse 3 when they're told to hold back the wind. I think they mean to keep them from blowing in a harmful way because that's what he says in verse 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees, till we have sealed. They're, they're giving a, uh, a command to hold for a moment. Apparently they're going to bring about another judgment but before they do so, God, through this great angel from the east, tells them, wait, before you do the next thing, we have to do something else. And the something else is the sealing of uh, this select group of people. And uh, he says that um, we're going to seal these servants of our God, he says, verse 3, on their forehead. And uh, we should remind us, of the, again, the carefulness of God, even in great judgment, where he is bringing devastating uh, catastrophes on the earth, yet he is careful to watch over his people. Now, unlike the cases of uh, Noah and Lot and Rahab, where God actually, uh, well, I guess in the case of Noah and Lot, he took the people out of judgment. In Rahab, she was actually kind of kept there, if you will, through the judgment. And that's going to be the situation with these 144,000. They're not taken out of the judgment, but they are preserved through it, as we'll see. And it says that they will receive the seal of God, whatever that is. We don't know what it is, what it looks like. If it's visible to human sight, we don't know. It's just called the seal of God. But it's on their foreheads. And that's remarkable because later on, guess where people receive the mark of the beast? That's right. Either on the head or on the, on the forehead. And so it's as if God is anticipating that move on the part of Antichrist and he's going to put his own mark on his people beforehand. We know because these are the people of God that they will not, therefore, receive the mark of the beast because receiving the mark of the beast is uh, tantamount to worshiping him. We also understand, and here's a, a big uh, contradiction to the uh, misuse of these people. They are Jews. There's 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of uh, Israel. Let's uh, read now verses 4 through 8. And I want to read each, each verse, even though it may sound repetitious, because God went to the trouble of putting this list here. As we're going to see, it's a, it's a remarkable list. We should really pause and uh, praise God for it. Because it's, it's a statement of the faithfulness of God uh, in not forsaking his people, but keeping his promises from so far back uh, that they will turn to him, that in the last days they will come to him, as it says in Romans, 
11, that all Israel shall be saved. This is it. This is the fulfillment of it here. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. And now when I read these, if you look in your Bible, uh, in each verse, in 4 through 8, the verse ends in the word, the phrase, were sealed. If you look at the word were, you notice it's different? It's italicized. The reason is because that's not in the original. It's a very strong statement in the original language to leave that word out. And so I'm going to read it that way. It's, it's a very, uh, it has a much uh, stronger assertion of the sovereignty of God. So I'm going to leave that word out as I read it. Verse 4, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000, sealed. Isn't that great? God keeps His Word. And as He said uh, so long ago that He will bring His people to Himself, so He will in the last days. These are going to be 144,000 Jews active during the tribulation, preaching Christ, their Messiah. Now, uh, you may be sitting here wondering, how in the world uh, can God know what tribe they're from? Well, God knows that. We may not know. They may not know even. But God knows. And so, it's wonderful to me that God is not only here, here are the 12 tribes listed. There are some differences from other lists. Uh, you'll notice Joseph is a tribe and there are a couple of missing that have been replaced. But nevertheless, 12 tribes with 12,000 each and God knows which tribe, to this day, any Jew is from. And he's going to pick 12,000 from each tribe. Now, we're going to look just ahead because we're going to encounter the 144,000 later. We're not going to preach this section. We'll save it for later. But just to kind of bring closure on this group, look at chapter 14 very quickly. Revelation 14, this is a scene at the end of the tribulation. And we'll learn from this then that this 144,000, the ceiling sets them apart so that they are not harmed. That's the point. During the tribulation. If you don't know already, we're going to see when we get into it that to be a Christian during the tribulation is not going to be an easy thing. In fact, it appears that most Christians will be martyred during the tribulation. But this is 144,000 that God is going to set apart who will be uh, faithful to Him in preaching throughout the uh, tribulation. And so at the end of the tribulation, we see again, we, we visit the 144,000, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. I like this. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. Isn't that great? They have their own song. No one else can learn this song but the 144,000. It speaks of a special relationship that they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. There's a little clue to the timing of this thing. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We're not going to preach on this yet, as I said. We'll come back to that when we get to chapter 14. But I just wanted to uh, add a little more information to this 144,000. Go back now to uh, Revelation 7. <coughs> I'm just making notes on the clues right now. We'll, we'll wrap them all up when we uh, get farther into the passage for the timing. Okay, we see uh, a second group now, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7. It's an even greater multitude. We'll read verses 9 through 14. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. A second group, notice it says that they were from all nations, all tribes. Some think these are just Gentiles. I, I don't see why it has to be restricted to that. It appears to be, uh, it says from every nation on earth. I think it's uh, a great multitude of people who are saved during the tribulation. Um, they're martyrs. They sealed their testimony with their own blood. They died for Christ during the, the, the tribulation. In fact, if you notice another clue, verse 14, it said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's important. Look back at Matthew 24. Verse 15. And this will be the final key to placing a chronology on these events. 
Most of you were here for our uh, side messages, as you might call them. Well, we looked at the 70 weeks of Daniel, you remember. Uh, remember that the tribulation is, is, takes place during a period that's also called the 70th week of Daniel. That's from Daniel chapter 9, where God prophesied that there were 70 weeks, or 77s literally, for Daniel and for his people and for their holy city. And the 70th week, or seven, which we discovered is actually seven years, actually seven years of 360 days, uh, is yet to happen. And the clock will not begin to tick on that 70th week until the church is gone. God has one people in the center of His dealings at any given moment. And for the longest time, that people was the nation of Israel. He removed those people from the center of His blessing, not only spiritually, but even physically by removing them from the land in 70 A.D. And at that time, he replaced them with another people. Not with national boundaries, but from all nations of the earth. And that group of people is called what? The church. That's right. And we're living in that age right now. It started on the day of Pentecost, and it will go until the rapture. At which point, how is he going to have the people of Israel and the church both here at the same time in the center of his dealings? Well, he won't. He's going to remove this group that's here now, the church, via the rapture, physically snatching us up, removing us from the scene. And at that point, he will then return to the nation of Israel and finish off that 70th week. Now, we learned from Daniel 9 when we looked at it that that last week, that last seven years, the tribulation is actually broken into two parts, right down the middle. Remember, in the middle of the week, it says that he will break the covenant and he will bring an end to offering sacrifice and offering. And then terrible things will happen to the nation of Israel in particular during that time. Well, the Lord Jesus, in His reply uh, to the disciples, who uh, I think innocently uh, asked Him, you know, when will these things happen and when will be the, the, uh, the uh, sign of, of the, your coming? I don't think they really understand everything they asked Him. He answered that question by giving them uh, a glimpse of the tribulation here in Matthew 24. And in verse 15, he has been following along, very, as I mentioned before, the uh, events that he spoke of follow very closely the first six seals. And then he comes to Daniel, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the, on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. This clearly coincides with the middle of Daniel's 70th week. And he's saying at that moment, and we're going to see when we get further into the book of Revelation, that there are many things that happen at that point. The Antichrist comes out into the open, as it were. He apparently erects uh, an idol to himself in the temple in Jerusalem, causes it and himself to be worshipped. At the same time, the devil is cast out of heaven. And he makes as his particular target the nation of Israel. 
And that's why the Lord Jesus gives this particular warning. This is directed to Jews. And he says, when the middle of that 70th week comes, and you'll know it by what happens in the temple, he basically says, get out of there. Because the devil and the Antichrist, the devil's man, is going to go after the nation of Israel big time. And then he says in verse 21, For then, at that point, halfway through, there will be, notice, what? Great tribulation. There's that phrase again. That's right. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This is a unique phrase. It's used again in Revelation. And the Lord Jesus uses it here to identify the last half of Daniel's 70th week. The last half of the tribulation. The word tribulation is used to describe the whole seven years, but the great tribulation, the worst time, and the worst time for the nation of Israel, is used to describe the second half. Now, where did that great multitude come out of that we saw in Revelation 7? The great tribulation. So they were saved during the second half. Now, it appears that they are linked with the 144,000 Jews in that um, they were saved through their ministry. It's a, it, it appears that's why God put them together in that parenthesis. That God set apart these Jews to preach the gospel. And it looks to me and many others that uh, they were set apart at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. I, remember I said before, uh, you can't say with definiteness exactly when in the book of Revelation the Great Tribulation begins. But this is another indicator that it may well be after the seals. Because we've really finished the seals. All that's left is the seventh one and all that happens there is silence. And the trumpets begin. So, we're not going to be dogmatic about this, but uh, I know um, Bill holds to this and there are many other commentators. It sure looks like uh, the great tribulation in the book of Revelation begins at the end of the seven seals, actually the six seals, because the seventh seal really takes us to the very end of the great tribulation as it contains the trumpets and the vials. Okay, back to Revelation. So isn't this good? It's refreshing, though, to see that in the midst of terrible judgment and suffering, that in spite of all that's going on, there are many who will be saved who will turn to Christ during that time. And, of course, remember now, he said the 144,000 Jews, that doesn't account for the whole amount of the Jews that will be saved. This is a special 144,000 who do not die during the tribulation. God protects them so they might faithfully take his word. Okay, we saw in verse 9, again, uh, the great multitude, the description of it. And when we read something like this, look and behold, a great multitude, uh, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, we should pause and try to envision it and realize to ourselves, first of all, you know, this very well could and should have been just angels. There's no... Uh, absolute reason why there should be people here at the throne of the Lamb. should be just unfallen angels. But praise God, by His grace, there's a multitude of people 
saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I read things like this, I, I can just picture the Lord Jesus looking out on this multitude of, of people, some of whom were in this room, in the, in the greater multitude of, of uh, saved people. And uh, as he looks out on the, that group, I think of verses like, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Don't you think that's going to go through his mind as he looks out and sees sinners saved by his blood? Hebrews talks about him leading many sons to glory. That's men and women and children. And uh, Hebrews again says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. As he looks out and sees you and me kneeling in worship to him, I think that's part of that joy for which he endured the cross. Okay, well, we'll uh, look at the um, uh, praise here in verse 12. This is our Thanksgiving message for the day. Uh, we appreciate Don filling in last week uh, for the Thanksgiving message. But we can follow up again in verse 12. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I tell you, when you're there and when I'm there saying words like this, we're going to feel it. When we say thanksgiving, we're going to feel thanksgiving. We're going to be so thankful to be there with Him. I like uh, God's mode of uh, teaching John in the book of Revelation. Sometimes he just outright tells him something. Sometimes through an angel he'll ask him a question. That's God's way. We've learned that, haven't we, throughout the Bible? To teach by asking questions. And here, I think John might have been taken a little off guard. The angel uh, turns to him and says, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Verse 13. And where do they come from? And... Uh, you can really see John's humility. Imagine being in his place. He didn't uh, come out with a guess, you know, or some uh, off the top of his head answer. He said, sir, you know. I like that. In other words, I don't know, but I'm sure you do. And that's probably why you asked me. And so he's told that these are the ones that came out of the Great Tribulation. Now we learn in verse 14 that it says they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, when you read things like that, it should jump out at you. Because if you were to take a white robe or, or a stained robe and wash it in blood, it would come out red, wouldn't it? But here it says they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they came out white. How is that? Well... The reason is because the stains on their robes were not grease and grime. The stains were sin. Everyone here has sin stains all over them until they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has a stain remover like one you've never seen. Because there's no amount of Bonami or uh, Fantastic that's going to wash your sin away. There's only one thing. In fact, we sing it in a hymn. What can wash away my sin? Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is one solvent for washing away sin. Praise God. And as here, it washes you white as snow. Washes away all your sin. 
Have you been washed clean yet? You know it. If you've been washed, you know it. There's nothing like it. I remember when I got saved, uh, I, could, I could literally feel, I felt clean. It was so wonderful to have a clear conscience at last, after 25 years of sinning, to know that Jesus had washed all my sins away. And I know I see some smiles. You know what that's like. Well, if you don't know what it's like, you can know today. Because the fountain is still there. And the blood is just as efficacious as ever as it's ever been. It will wash away all your sin if you come to Him. I like uh, the last three verses here because it's uh, like a foretaste of the last two chapters, which are pictures of heaven, of what it's going to be like. He gives us a little glimpse here. Uh, we'll read in 15 through 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a contrast with the scene on earth, huh? And you ought to notice this as we go through the book of Revelation. As, as God is finally acting in judgment on the earth. And what a, a scene of catastrophe and terror there is on the earth. Yet never in heaven do you see any hurry or anxiety uh, or pandemonium. God is in control. Even in the judgment, he's very careful in bringing about his judgment. And here you see, in spite of what's going on, you see a beautiful scene, a, a pastoral scene of God caring for his people. I want you to notice something too. You, you should pick up on these things. We haven't pointed it out every time. We have a couple of times we've gone through Revelation. But uh, along with John and Hebrews and Colossians, Revelation is one of the strongest books on the teachings of the deity of Christ. And it's been all over here. I don't know if you've noticed. But uh, look back at some of the phrases here. Particularly in relation to the worship and the throne. Verse 9. Look back at verse 9. These, uh, this multitude, it says, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. No one would be included in that but God Himself. Verse 10. Uh, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11. Uh, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God. And last part, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Who's on the throne? God. Look at verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. Now that's a very confusing language unless I've talked to believers and they read about pictures of heaven and uh, if you talk to them long enough you find out that they're you know, I wouldn't call them complaints not exactly misgivings but particularly young believers, when they first begin to think of heaven, uh, 
they can't really imagine what it's going to be like, and they read some of the passages, and they come away with two impressions. One is, they're afraid it's going to be boring. Or the other is, in cases like this, where it says that, uh, that they will serve him, uh, they're afraid that they're going to be too busy. And uh, let me tell you, first of all, heaven's not going to be boring. Okay? You're going to be with the one that you were created for. Remember that. It's sin that has corrupted our thinking into thinking that we were created for things on this earth. And we go in mad pursuit of everything from riches to fame to glory to money to pleasure, you name it. We were not created for those things. Remember, we were not designed, let's put it that way, for those things. You were designed by someone. And you were designed for him. And so, it's not so much what you're going to be doing or not doing as who you will be with. You will be where you were meant to be from the very beginning. And so, it won't be boring. And I thank God that we're going to be doing something. I don't know what exactly, uh, but it says we're going to serve him. People have this stereotypic picture, which is not in the Bible, of uh, people sitting on clouds, you know, with a little halo and strumming a harp. That would be boring. But it's not from the Bible. The Bible indicates in many places that we're going to have things to do. But the thing is, we're going to be doing them in the presence of the one that we're meant to be doing them with. So, rejoice when you read things like this. We'll be serving him, and we'll find out what it is when we get there. But I'll tell you, 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 will, you will have no greater joy than when you're doing these things, believer. If I can use the word, um, one of the popular drugs today is ecstasy. Boy, what a, what a lie that is. But this will be real ecstasy, serving God in his presence. Verses 16 and 17 uh, are almost right out of chapters 21 and 22. Because of the no mores. Remember, we talked about that in uh, Breaking of Bread a couple of months ago. But there are five here, things that are no more. Thirst, hunger, heat, death, and sorrow. In... uh, the verse 17, this should, this should remind you of something. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. What psalm does that remind you of? Anybody? 23rd Psalm. That's right. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is the only place in the New Testament where... This exact phraseology is used of the Lord Jesus. I love it. The Lamb who is in the midst of says, will shepherd them and lead them. Isn't that wonderful? It's taken right out of Psalm 23. And, it's, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah God. In 23, and here's the Lord Jesus. Again, a statement of the deity of Christ. And, um, of course, in that psalm it says that he leads me by the still waters. Here, it's... Uh, a living fountain of waters. Literally, it's the fountain of the waters of life. 
and uh, we're going to—it's going to be seen later in the Book of Revelation. But there is a particular fountain that uh, is in heaven that actually has waters of life. So he'll be shepherding us, watching over us. And this last picture here is uh, so personal. It says, "And God will wipe away every tear." from their eyes. It's a beautiful picture of the compassion of God. The picture there is of, you parents can relate to this, you know, your child's been crying and you, and you stoop down beside your child and there are the tears on the cheek and you stoop down and, and just with your finger, you know, you, you wipe away the tears. You ever done that before? And that's the picture that is used here of God. It's so compassionate, so gentle, so tender. And as I read this, I thought about uh, last time when we were in the book of Revelation, we looked at Isaiah 4, you remember, where it said about God that the nations are the small dust in the balance. He is so great and so awesome. And yet at the same time, we see phrases like this, that God will wipe away. And it says every tear. Isn't that great? Not just the wipe away tears, wipe away every tear. An indication of all sorrow will be left behind. There'll be no room for it in heaven. And God personally will minister this comfort to us. Okay, we'll finish there. And uh, Lord willing, in uh, January, we'll pick up in Revelation chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this lovely scene in chapter 7 of Revelation. A picture of heaven where the Lamb is on the throne being worshipped as He should shepherding His people. And Lord, we who know You look forward to joining in the scene. In a sense, Lord, we, we're really not where we ought to be until we're there. And so as we read these words, Lord, it makes us long to be with You. Long to have You shepherd us, lead us by the fountain of living waters and to wipe away every tear. But Lord, as long as you tarry, we know that in your word it says that the long-suffering of God is salvation. So we think of those in our midst right now who are not facing those benefits. Their robes are still filthy with sin. Oh, may they come today and wash them white in the blood of the Lamb and be shepherded by Him. We ask in His name. Amen.